Up next, we got a flyweight bout between Brandon Royval, the American fighter, and Rogerio Bontarine from Brazil. Bontarine is 17-3 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights, 29 years old, 5-5 in height with 67-inch reach. He trains out of Gael Ribeiro team. As for Royval, he's 12-6 overall. He goes by Raw Dog, 3-2 in his last five fights, hails out of Littleton, Colorado, 29 years old. So same age, both fighters, 5-9 in height, 4-inch height advantage over Bontarine, and he's got a 70.5-inch reach, so about 4-inch reach advantage as well over Bontarine. He's training at a factory X Muay Thai, so excellent gym there for Brandon Royval. Looking at the Tapology public votes, they're coming to the side of Brandon Royval with 85% of the votes coming for Royval, only 15% coming for Bontarine. That surprises me. Um, at first glance, I did think Brandon Royval was kind of the better fighter, but when you start looking at film... Both these guys exude moments or show moments in fights where basically their their fighter IQ is not the best or decision making is not the best. In the case of, for example, Roy Val, he could be winning a round and then he'll do something at the end of the round and lose the fight. Um, Rogero Bontarine as well has done the same thing where he's winning a fight, winning a round and loses at the very end of a round, gets knocked out. So both fighters have shown questionable fighter IQ. I'm not going to wager very much in this fight either way. I'm going to give you my advice. I'm going to give you the breakdown, but I'm going to tell you, this is a fight where it's more or less of a coin flip. The money line suggests that. Minus 160 for Roy Val, plus 140 for Rogero Bontarine. If it's a coin flip, you know, mathematically, take the plus money, right? Um, but I don't feel comfortable either side. I don't have a good feel, even for the fight going the distance or not going the distance. We'll talk about that at the end of this breakdown, but I'm not sure which way it goes. Now, break down the, the striking numbers here. For Roy Val, he's landing 3.44 strikes per minute, absorbing 2.98. So pretty good ratio for Bontarine landing 2.82 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.41. Clearly Bontarine is not an efficient striker. He's landing, he's landing about three strikes per minute, absorbing almost three and a half strikes per minute. So not good output, not good ratio. Roy Val should be the better striker on the feet. He should win the fight on the feet when the fight is on the feet. Now looking at takedown offense, surprisingly Bontarine is only averaging 1.68 takedowns per 15 minutes compared to 1.16 for Roy Val. When you watch Bontarine fight, He's an excellent wrestler. He needs to wrestle more. He can win fights. He can win rounds with his wrestling. I expect him to try to wrestle Royval to the ground. Now, granted, Royval is an excellent submission artist, so I imagine Bontarine will have to be aware of that. But Bontarine cannot win this fight in the feet. If the fight's strictly on the feet, the numbers tell you right there. They don't lie. Bontarine does not have good output versus input. Brandon Royval is more efficient. He's a pretty good striker, and he's got more output. Now, for takedown defense, they're both the same, about 50%. Looking at the uh, notes I have on both fighters here. So for Royval, let's start off with him first. 5-2 and two in LFA before signing with UFC. 2-2 two and two right now in the UFC. His biggest wins were against Kai Car France, which that win is a great win. Round 2 submission, 2020. He also beat Jerome Rivera back in 2018, uh, back in LFA via round 1 TKO. Uh, Rivera is currently a UFC fighter. So, for notable opponents, he lost to Brendan Moreno. That was a weird fight. The link's in the description to watch that fight if you want to check it out yourself. Round 1, pretty quick. Um, he suffers some kind of a weird shoulder injury. You can't tell that he dislocated his shoulder. Something happened. He pulled something, some kind of a muscle issue because he was in a situation where they're both on the ground. Next thing you know, he's grabbing his arm. So weird loss there, but he did fight Brandon Moreno. He also lost round two rear naked choke to Alexandra Pantoja. That, that, that's a fight you got to look at if you're looking to really break this down yourself. He loses that fight, and he was winning every part of that fight up into that moment. So he was winning round one, or he won round one, excuse me. He was winning every part of round two. He was in positions where he was in control position, where he was in top or in, in, in position of control while he had the clinch going, and then just makes a silly decision, ends up giving up his back. He's on the ground, plenty of time to get out of that position, ends up getting rear naked choked in round two by Pantoja. So a fight he should have won, a fight he lost because of poor decision making and poor technique on the ground. He also lost against Casey Kenny back in 2018 in LFA by decision. So those are his most notable opponents. The things I like about Roy Val. 
He's very quick, variety of strikes, kicking, punching, um, has some power in his hands, has, win, has wins over multiple guys who are in the UFC. His finish rate is pretty good, especially by submission. So, for example, his last four wins have all been via submission. Okay, He's got nine submission wins out of his 12 total career wins. So the guy is a submission master. He'll chase, he'll chase heel hooks. He'll chase leg locks. He'll chase anything. Um, and that's his game plan. You know, He's looking to try, to try to submit the guy he's going against. Now, the concerns I have with Rival, he's coming off of back-to-back -back losses. One of those is an injury loss against Moreno. That's fine. The other one was a submission loss. His durability to me is definitely in question right now. If he suffers a bad loss here, gets finished, durability may be a problem for him. So here's a guy who, in his 16 prior fights, up until you know the last few fights, he was doing well. He had not been finished. Now he's been finished in his last two fights. So kind of interesting how he goes 16 fights, shows good durability, doesn't get finished. Now his last two fights gets finished, whether it's an injury or whatever else. Durability has to be a question. Very poor takedown defense in the case of Brandon Royval. It says 52% takedown defense. If a guy who really wants to wrestle him to the ground wrestles him, they will take him down. He does not very does not defend takedowns very well. And then his submission defense is not great either, a la what happened against Pantoja. So he had opportunities to get out of that submission attempt by Pantoja, just did not do a good job, kept putting himself in danger, gave up his back multiple times before that. Um, so it doesn't do well against submission attempts. He's got poor fighter IQ. In that Pantoja fight, I want to double down and explain, like, he was winning the fight, okay? He was winning. He won all round one. Round two is going well. It's going his way, and he just makes poor decisions. He doesn't have to work in the clinch. Doesn't have to be on the ground. Makes a decision to play that game with a guy who's dangerous in that, in that area. And so, you know, I just question again his decision-making, his fighter IQ. He's coming off of two straight losses. He's going to be pressing in this fight. Not good conditions for a fighter to come into uh, to a match. So, now as for Rogerio Bontarin, he won a Dana White Contender Series back in 2018. He won via standing guillotine choke, which is pretty impressive. Uh, he won the first two UFC fights, so now he's dropped a few now. But he was 2-0 in the UFC at one point. He likes to wear his opponents, opponents down in close range. He doesn't want to work from a distance. Working close, bring him to the ground, use his takedown, use some ground and pound, dirty boxing. He doesn't have great reach. Obviously, it makes sense. Shorten the fight, work in the clinch, right? His most notable opponent, he fought Kai Kara France. So they both fought Kai Kara France, but he lost round one via TKO. Interesting tidbit about that fight. He was winning all of round one. He'd wrestled Kai Kara France to the ground. He had position control, landed some nice strikes in the feet. And then with five seconds to go in round one, Kai Car France clocks him with a really beautiful, you know, punch. And just that's it. It's a one punch deal. Weird situation there at the end. It was a confusing as to whether the fight was over or not. But the point is, he won that round up until that very moment. So it wasn't a great loss by any means. And if you're just doing MMA math, you know, Kai Car France uh, lost against Roy Val, but uh, he won against Bontarine. So the biggest wins of his career, um, and that's for Bontarine. He beat Matt Schnell via decision 2021 and Rowland Paeva via Dr. Stoppage due to a cut 2020. So not big time names. Hasn't really been tested himself. That's Bontarine. The things I like about Bontarine, <coughs> excuse me, excellent takedown offense and wrestling when he uses it. 1.68 takedowns per fight is not enough for a guy who's not a good striker. He needs to work more in his wrestling because it's really good when he uses it. High winning percentage. He's got a 17-3 record, you know, so he's winning at a high clip. He's only lost back-to-back -back fights one time in his career. He's got a solid finish rate. He's won... Four of his last six wins have been by submission or, or TKO of some kind. Most of his record in his early part of his career, though, was against very low-level fighters. So 17-3, yeah, it's more like 7-3. You know, those first 10, 10 opponents or so just were not very quality fighters. He was 14-1 before joining the UFC. So that's notable to kind of consider, right? So he's 17-3 now. He was 14-1. 
jumps up to the UFC, all of a sudden starts notching some losses. He's one and two in his last three fights. He decided to trade with Kai Kara France. If he decides to trade with Brandon Roy Val, even for just five seconds, he can get clipped and get knocked out. That's what happened against Kai Kara France. Roy Val is a pretty good damn striker. He does a variety of stuff. Rogero Bontarine doesn't have the best stand-up defense either. So if he stays disciplined, wrestles Brandon Roval, that's a path of victory. If he tries to trade with him like he did with Kai Kara France, he can end up with the same result. The film links that you'll find in the description for the fights to be watched to do this breakdown were Roval versus Pantoja 2021, Roval versus Moreno 2020, Bontarine versus Chanel in 2021, and Bontarine versus Kai Kara France 2021. So watch those fights at your leisure. Just a little final comparison here, the two fighters here. Roy Val and Bontarine, in my, in my opinion, have ex ex like pretty much exact same experience, right? Four UFC fights versus five UFC fights, you know, 20, 20 total fights versus 18 total fights. Experience-wise, they're very, very similar. Fighter IQ, they both have done things in the octagon that are just very glaring issues. So I'm giving them both a two and a half out of five, um, maybe more, more down to a two. I don't want to be disrespectful, but they've got to shore up their decision-making have to stop losing fights when you're winning the fight. You know, that's just a really poor, you know, it's an example of just poor decision-making in the octagon. Cardio, about the same. They both seem to function pretty well in round three, so I'm giving them both the same grade in cardio. Finishing ability, about the same. You know, you've got guys like, you know, they've had some finishes in their in their, in their past, but for Roy Val, I see him slowing down a little bit. Competition's getting a little bit tougher. For Bontarine, the same thing. This fight is not supposed to go the distance according to the bookies. The bookies have it at minus 205 for the, for the fight, finishing under three rounds. I guess that could happen either because Roy Val submits Bontarine or knocks Bontarine out or because Bontarine, you know, submits Roy Val, something of that nature. So that minus 205, I guess, makes sense, but I don't feel great about that position either. It's my favorite prop bet for this fight. Now, boxing-wise, slight advantage there for Roy Val. He's cleaner, throws more strikes, more variety of strikes. And then the grappling advantage, I'm going to give that to Roy Val as well. He's more dangerous with submissions. Obviously, you talked about nine submissions in his 12 wins, so he's, you know, very good in that area. It should be noted, Factory X Muay Thai is an excellent gym. Gal Ribeiro team is also very good. So both guys are coming out of very good training camps, very good coaching, uh, very good partners. This is a tough fight, guys. I'm not sure where I'm going to end up landing when the final you know window closes with this. I think I'm leaning towards Rogerio Bontarine. The plus money may be a factor, even though it shouldn't really be a factor. I just think that with Brandon Royval coming off of the injury loss to Brandon Moreno, right? Um... You know, that didn't look good. I'm, I'm wondering, again, like, you know, some guys can be very talented. They're just a little fragile, right? That just happens. And so is Brandon Royval fragile? Um, is he showing signs of durability issues? Rogerio Bontarine is built like a, you know, like a, a fire hydrant, man. He's, he's thick. He's shorter. He's got pretty good durability. The chin is maybe a question with him, too. So just a lot up in the air with this fight. You're going to probably end up with a pass for me. I'm not going to bet the fight straight up for the money line. I'll do maybe some kind of parlay where I'll put, um, you know, Roy Val or or Bontarine both back to back, flip them because they just have no confidence in this in this uh, actual fight. So I'll watch it. I'll be very curious. I'm looking for who makes the better decisions, but I'm going to side ever so slightly with Rogero Bontarine, uh, the, the the fighter to win the fight here. But it's going to be close, guys. Good luck with this fight if you're wagering on it. Uh, maybe you know more than I do. Leave some comments. Give me some advice on what you think is going to happen with this fight. Who's going to win? All right, guys. Good luck with this one. Next up, we got a featherweight bout between the Brazilian fighter Joe Anderson, Brito, and the American Bill Algio. Algio goes by Senor Perfecto. He's 14 and 6 overall, 2 and 3 in his last five fights, fighting out of King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. 32 years old, 6 foot in height with 73 and a half inch reach. 
He's fighting out of Aljo MMA and kickboxing, which is his gym. As for Brito, who goes by Tubarayo, I don't know what that means, but it sounds cool. He's 12-2-1 overall on a five-fight winning streak. Oh, excuse me, 11-fight winning streak. 5-0 in his last five fights. 26 years old, 5-8 in height with 72-inch reach. He's out of shoot, box, barrel. Now, according to public votes here, it looks like our buddy here, Brito, is the strong favorite. Getting 80% of the votes here. Only 20% of the votes are coming in for Aljo. I'm a little surprised with that because I do think Aljo's a pretty good fighter. American fighter. Well-known. Um, he's got a name. He's fought in some good regional promotions. But I do agree Joe Anderson Brito's probably going to win the fight. Um, looking at their striking numbers here, Brito's landing 4.31 strikes per minute, absorbing 1.96. Good ratio. For Aljo, a little busier, landing 6.37 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.87. Now, the numbers I want to pay attention here to are the takedown offensive numbers here. Joe Anderson Brito's landing 4.41 takedowns per 15 minutes. So just about four and a half takedowns per three-run fight. Whereas Bill Aljo's landing just about a half a takedown per 15 minutes. So clearly, Brito's much more of an active wrestler. Now, for takedown defense, Brito's defending at a 0% rate, and Aljo's defending at a 55% rate. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, watching the film in these two fighters, Joannison Brito is such an active wrestler, he takes his opponent down in the first 10, 15 seconds of the fight. He doesn't waste any time. When you watch Bill Aljo, Bill Aljo has had a hard time in that department. We'll talk more in detail about it, but he's not great at takedown defense. Uh, 55% is kind of being kind when you look at his actual fights recently. So, in terms of fighter IQ, they're very similar. They're, they're very young in the fight game. Um, 26 years old for Brito. Only, what, 15 total oh, Sorry, 15 total fights, yeah. For Algio, 20 total fights, 32 years old. So, they haven't fought high-level opponents. They haven't really been tested. So, fighter IQ-wise, I couldn't really uh, give them a high rating because they just haven't really been tested in the octagon. Now, looking at the notes here on two fighters, let's start here with uh, Bill Algio first. Mentioned he's from Pennsylvania, grew up in Pennsylvania, started wrestling at the age of 14. And if you know anything about Pennsylvania, wrestling is pretty legit here. He started off his uh, wrestling career 0-14 in high school, so really rough start. By the time he was done in high school, he was the team captain and all-state wrestler. Started BJJ at the age of 18 years old, and unique story, he was at Penn State University, full-time student, uh, studying finance. And at the time, he was a full-time student, also boxing on Penn State's boxing team. I didn't even know they had a boxing team at Penn State, but he was doing that. He was also teaching a BJJ program. He had his own BJJ program at that time. So a bit of an entrepreneur, a hustler, a guy working very hard, even while he was in college as a student. He went undefeated as an amateur. He lost on Dana White Contender Series in 2019 via decision to Brandon Lofnade, who's a decent fighter now in Bellator. He fought in CFFC prior to UFC. He's 1-2 in the UFC. He uses a karate style. That's his style. That's his stance. He tends to stand you know, sideways, Head up high, hands down low, very similar to Stephen Thompson. I keep mentioning that, but that's one of the people that people know, a well-known name, and he fights very similar to that uh, fighting style. His biggest career win was over Spike Carlisle via decision in 2020. You know, Spike Carlisle, he's, he's, he's a complicated guy, um, a bit of a wild man, but he's a, he's a known name, so that's his most popular win in his uh, topology. Now, the pros I like here about Aljo, um, even his losses were against decent-level opponents. So he lost to Ricardo Lamos twice by decision. He lost to Shane Burgos in XFE in 2014, lost to Jared Gordon in CFFC in 2017, and lost to Brandon Laughlin in Dayton White Contender Series 2019. So decent names, names you recognize, they're not cans. He's a smart fighter. He's got a coaching background. I like the guys who coach. It just Those guys tend to do well. Um, you know, they're, they're obviously in the gym more often. They're working with athletes. They see it from the other side, right? So they tend to be the smarter athletes. And I wanted to give him a fighter, hotter, excuse me, a higher fighter IQ rating here than Brito, but... Brito's such a good wrestler, and that plays such a big factor here that I, that's why I couldn't give him a higher rating here than Brito. Now, in terms of um, his uh, oh his win over Spike Carlisle, notably, he was a slight dog there at plus 150. So that was a nice win over Spike Carlisle. Now, the concerns I have here with Algio, he's still in search of a signature win, like a win where it's like, oh, he beat this guy. Like He's still just 
kind of beating okay guys. He trains at his own gym. Um, is that a benefit? Yes and no. Is it a drawback? You can see the drawbacks where it's like you're not really being pushed. It's your environment. You set the stage. You're the person in charge. Financially, you know, culturally, everything, it depends on you. And that could be a little much. Whereas, like, if, you know, if you go to, like, ATT down in Florida for your camp or whatever and you're training with some other people and you take all that other distractions out of the way, um, it may be better for him. I'm not sure how that plays a part, but it is a concern to me. A very low finish rate. Uh, he's been to five straight decisions for Bill Algio. Um, good volume, good volume. The guy's got good volume. Look, 6.37 strikes per minute, but just doesn't have a lot of power behind his strikes. It's noticeable on film. You'll see that. Throws a lot of, like, Nate Diaz type of strikes, where there's not a lot of power on it. It's just to touch his opponent. He's 2-3 in three in his last five fights. He gets a little sloppy in late fights, specifically, like, his fight against Ramos. He's just very sloppy in round three. Um, easy to be countered. His hands are very low. Not much on his punches. His takedown defense is by far the biggest issue with Bill Aljo. And who is he fighting against? A guy who likes to get takedowns. This is the this is the recipe for disaster for Bill Aljo. He's going to get taken down early and often. You got a guy in Brito who averages over four takedowns per fight. And Bill Aljo struggled with reverse Ramos and Carlisle. Now think about this. Bill, I mean, Bill Carlisle. Um, Spike Carlisle is known to be like an early attacker, wild man, Tasmanian devil. By round three, we all expect Spike Carlisle to be a tired fighter. And he was tired in round three of their fight. Even in round three, Carlisle's able to just like grab a single leg and take down Aljo with ease. So look, even though Aljo gets up, I give him that, he does get off the mat. He gets taken down so much. And against Ramos and Carlisle, he was repeatedly getting taken down. Against um, <clears throat> those guys are good wrestlers. They're good, not great. Here we got a guy in Joanna Sombrito who's a very high-level wrestler. The numbers support that. The fight probably goes to distance. It's just not going to be close in the scorecards. I think Joanna Sombrito is going to eat up the clock on the ground. Multiple takedowns per round. He's going to attack Bill Aljo's weakness, and that's the biggest area where Aljo has a weakness in. For Aljo, a guy with a wrestling background, it looks as if he doesn't spend a lot of time on his wrestling you know, technique. And so I'm just calling the obvious. He may be a good wrestler, and he just hasn't done enough of it recently. You'd expect going into this fight, he's had a lot of time in camp to prepare for a wrestler. But that's an area of Bill Aljo's game, which I'd like to see him improve upon. Now, for Anderson Brito, he's a typical Brazilian-born BJJ grappler, wrestler. He won on Dana White's contender series in 2021 via a technical decision. It was like an uneventful decision. Unfortunately, he was fighting against um, Lopez. He was winning the first two rounds. Round three comes around. He mistakenly pokes Lopez in the eye. They can't keep fighting. Goes to the scorecards. He wins by technical decision. Had the fight kept going, he probably still goes to the scorecards and wins by decision. Dominating performance, multiple takedowns, very, very aggressive. Took down Lopez in the first seven seconds of round one. Just doesn't play around. Doesn't you know, waste any time. 11-fight winning streak, as we mentioned. His last loss was seven years ago. The guy does not know what it means to lose. He's making his USC debut, so that's exciting for Brito. On the other hand, you know, first-time jitters. The biggest win of his career was over Mar Mariscal in 2020. I say it's his biggest win. Mariscal's not like a big name, but Mariscal did beat Pat Sabatini in 2018 by split decision. Sabatini's right now in the UFC. He's on a winning streak. So he knocked out Mariscal. Awful, man. Watch that fight. The link's in the description. He knocks him out so bad that after they've woken this young man back up, Mariscal, he is like, can't stand up. He's going on and on. Like he's trying to be combative, trying to tell people to get off of him. They have to actually just like carry him out of the ring and get him out of there or octagon because he was just being so disruptive and just completely out of it. And so it was a damn uh, scary knockout there by Brito, but it shows the power that he has. Um, in his hands. Um, that was a nice finish there, but that was his biggest win. Doesn't have notable wins. Same thing like Alger. Doesn't have signature wins. Hasn't fought a lot of high-level opponents. The positive I like about Brito, um, high finish rate. Nine finishes in his 12 wins. 
takedown offense is phenomenal. And he's fighting against a guy who has a problem with takedown you know, offense. So that should be his path to victory. Now, my concerns about Brito, he's fought very low-level competition, lower than Bill Algio. He has trouble with sharp, consistent jabs. When you watch the fight against Diego Lopez in the White Contender Series, he's getting tagged with a jab early and often, and he can't really do much about it. He doesn't seem to be able to, to slip it, can't really adjust to it, has a shorter reach. But Lopez was winning with the jab. Um, couldn't do enough of it, obviously. Couldn't you know succeed and win the fight. But the, the jab was a problem for him. I wonder if he's worked on that. Algio is not a big jabber. His hands are low. He's awkward. It does throw volume, but the jab is inconsistent. Um, that would be his path to victory for Algio. Keep this guy at bay, defend the takedowns, land the jab. Probably not going to happen, but that would be his path to victory. He hasn't really been tested, Brito that is. He hasn't been knocked out, hurt in a fight where he's really been tested. So that's another area where I'm just a little bit question mark. Now, he did take a break, two-year break, between his last two fights. So he fought in 2019, then two-year layoff, and then went to the NY Contender Series and got the, got the technical win. So you don't love that. I'm not sure where that was possibly partially because of you know COVID-19. But you want to see a guy 26 years old be a little more active. Now, the fights we looked at for this breakdown, we watched Brito versus Lopez, 2021. Brito versus Mariscal in 2019. Aljo versus Ricardo Lamos, 2021. And then Aljo versus Carlisle, 2020. Now, just some more details here in the two fighters here. Side-by-side breakdown. Experience-wise, I give a slight edge to Aljo. He's fought a few more UFC fights. It's a UFC debut here for Brito. IQ-wise, I give the advantage to Brito. Even though on the screen it's equal here, on the measuring stick there, the IQ, the slight edge goes to Brito just because of the fact that he wrestles so damn much. I love wrestlers. It's a different part of the game. Some guys just don't do it, don't do it well. Brito's a, a good enough fighter on the feet. He can manage himself on the feet. But on the on the floor, on the mat, big advantage there for him over Bill Aljo. I don't like the fact that Aljo can't defend the takedowns. Cardio-wise, I also give an advantage to Brito. Later in his fights, he looks pretty damn fresh. Still getting takedowns. Aljo looks sloppy and tired. Maybe it's his style. Maybe I'm misreading him. But he looked a little tired towards the end of some of his recent fights. Finishing ability, definitely on the side of Brito over Aljo. Aljo does not have Aljo does not have recent finishing ability, at least. Boxing-wise, pretty much about equal. Grappling-wise, big advantage there for Brito. So across the board, a lot of advantages for Brito. The fight goes a distance. That prop is minus 150. I like that position. I probably will bet that position. But just Brito straight up at minus 125. I think there's a lot of value there. I like him as one of my second third most favorite picks on the entire card. I know that's kind of high for the guy that's got to pick him on the money line, but I think Brito is just going to out-wrestle Aljo. He's going to take him to the ground, hold him down, get control time. When Aljo gets back to his feet, he may have a few moments where he gets like, on like a few nice strikes, some karate strikes, some kicks. It'll look nice, but then Brito's going to just hug him back up, get him against the fence. Aljo has given up his back and been taken down by lesser wrestlers. So the point here is that if Brito sticks to a simple game plan of wrestling, as long as he comes in here in shape, doesn't have any cardio issues himself or any lingering issues that we don't know about, if he just wrestles at his ability, he takes down Aljo seven times out of ten at a very high rate, wins this fight easy in the scorecards. Not going to be the fight of the night. Probably not going to be very exciting. Probably not going to finish. Um, if you like someone to finish the fight, I like Brito to finish the fight by TKO. That's plus 285. But probably the safest spot to go is the fight goes to decision. Even if you like Aljo, the fight goes to decision is minus 150. You can get Aljo right now plus 105. This is more or less a pick him. So I like Anderson to win the fight. We'll see how it goes. Bet with caution. This is probably going to be a very close fight. But I, I think that Brito is one of my one of my locks of the night. I think he's going to win this fight. I think he out-wrestles Aljo safely for a three-round victory and gets two of those three rounds easily in the scorecards. That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Thank you. 
The last fight they're playing of cards is going to be a flyweight bout between the Brazilian Clayton Rodriguez and the Uzbekistani fighter Zaruk Adashev. Adashev goes by the Lion. He's 4-3 overall, 29 years old, 5-5 five five in height with 65-inch reach. He trains out of a gym called Lions Fight Gym. As for Rodriguez, who goes by KR, he's 7-1 overall, 5-0 in his last five fights, hails out of Rio de Janeiro, 26 years old, 5-6 in height, so 1 inch taller, with a 67-inch reach, 2-inch reach advantage there over Adashev. He trains out of Team Noguera, which is a good gym in Brazil. As for the topology numbers here, Rodriguez is the favorite, getting 84% of the votes here, only 16% of the votes coming in for Adashev. It makes sense. If you didn't see Rodriguez fight recently, he was on the Dana White Contender Series uh, this past season. And, man, he was just a, a technical uh, – I mean, technique was just on point. He looked so sharp. Looked like a veteran <clears throat> already in the Dana White Contender Series. Now, didn't get a win via finish. It went to decision. But he just looked so sharp. He won every single round, I think, on all judges' scorecards except for maybe one round on one of the judges' scorecards. was sharp. Um, he faced a guy who was a very good wrestler, former, like, New York State champion, high school wrestler, um, just a very accomplished wrestler. Was able to defend that. Got taken down one time. Got up right away. Um, so just look really sharp. Didn't get the finish again. That was the only down part. But at seven and one, looks like a veteran. Um, at twenty six years old, looks more like a you know thirty two, thirty three year old fighter. The way he fights, very sharp, a bit cautious at times. Um, maybe that's just part of his training. So that's why he didn't get the finish in the Dana White Industries fight. So you know, like to see him maybe be more aggressive. That's one of the things that I, I would like to see from him. So more of the fighter striking numbers here. For Rodriguez is landing six point zero seven strikes per minute and absorbing one point four zero. Now, granted. That's from a very small sample size here, but still, you like the output of 6.07 strikes per minute, absorbing only 1.4. As for Adashev, a little less output, 3.54 strikes per minute output and absorbing 2.91. So at least he's absorbing less than what he's dishing out, but still not quite the output of Rodriguez. For takedown offense, both fighters are averaging zero takedowns per 15 minutes. Rodriguez is defending at 66% rate, and Adashev is defending at 100% rate. So I don't expect much takedown offense from either fighter. Most of the fight should be on the feet because somebody slip and fall and, you know, get some grappling time. Yeah, but even if, let's say, Adashev lands on top of Rodriguez because Rodriguez throws a kick and slips or something like that, Rodriguez has shown his way to get right back up. And Adashev, who's built a little more compact, pretty good wrestler himself, should be able to get back to the feet. So I imagine most of the fight will be on the feet. For Adashev, his fighting style is a circling style. He circles his opponents. Rodriguez has to command the center of the cage and actually push the pace. So this should be, it should work to both of their fighters' like tendencies. And we'll see how that works Rodriguez's out. Rodriguez's pro debut was in 2015. As we mentioned, just came off the NYS Contender Series in 2021. So this is his UFC debut. He's got a pretty good finish rate. Of his seven wins, he has four finishes. He likes to command the center of the cage, which you like from the standpoint that it looks good in the scorecards. He pushes the pace, forces his opponent to circle him. Very athletic. Clayton Rodriguez is very athletic. It pops out to you right away how quick he is, how dynamic he is, how explosive he is. He's in tremendous shape, as you can see on his topology photos um, or any pictures if you look up him online. He, the guy is chiseled. Very, very good shape. He lands with power. Um, he doesn't lose his power throughout the fight either. He holds his power throughout all three rounds of the fight. He's spinning back kicks um, with his hands, with his feet. Just very, very powerful. I imagine he's going to have some finishes in the UFC as well. Now, my concerns on Rodriguez are the areas that I just, you know, have some questions on. He hasn't faced much competition. This is his UFC debut. There will be some nerves there. You know, it's not the contender series. It's his first actual UFC fight. He is very inexperienced. He stands heavy on his lead leg. So if he faces an opponent who wants to attack his lead leg, that'll be something that'll be interesting to see how he handles that. He's very heavy on his lead leg. He's got a wide stance, um, and his leg is there for the taking if a guy wants to attack that. Adeshev does some kicking, but... You know, he's got a kickboxing background, but his lower leg kicking game is, is not very active. Um, he didn't push the pace enough, in my opinion, Rodriguez did it is, in his Data White Contender Series match. He got the win by decision, 
ends up obviously still getting into the UFC, but he just didn't show that like that killer mentality. We'll see if he develops that. He's a very young fighter, but I'd like to see more of that from him as he develops here as a young fighter. Now, looking at Zaruk Adeshev, born in Uzbekistan, but grew up more, more or less as a kid in New York City, um, started mixed martial arts with his brother when he was young, started kickboxing actually as their first sport in Kazakhstan. Um, he actually went 16-3 and three as a kickboxer, so had 19 kickboxing matches before going into mixed martial arts. Married with children, fighting out of Brooklyn, New York, 3-0 in Bellator, 1-2 in the UFC, solid cardio. This will be his fourth UFC fight, so the fact that he, you know, he's got a little more UFC experience than Cleason Rodriguez is a benefit to him. Um, he's hard to hit. He's a circler. He, he's on his bicycle. Um, he dips and moves. Um, it, it doesn't look like that's the way he would fight based upon his build. He, he's built more like a Michael Chandler, like stocky, um, looks like a wrestler, but doesn't wrestle very much, as you can see, based upon his numbers, zero takedowns, and his UFC experience. Circles a lot, and sometimes the circling can be a little bit of a negative, too. I feel like he, he doesn't engage enough you know, for, for to win certain rounds. Now, the concerns I have on, on Adeshev, he's going to have a size disadvantage here against Clayton Rodriguez. Now, Rodriguez doesn't stand tall. He, short, he sort of stands down a little bit lower, but he's going to still have a significant reach advantage. And Adeshev, he might be 5'5", five five, he might be 5'3". Five five the guy is quite short. His reach looks very short. It might be even shorter than 65 inches. So I believe Rodriguez tags him and reaches him from the outside. Um, he's lost two of his last three fights. That's Adeshev. He doesn't push the pace at all. So Adeshev, in his wins, you know, it's usually by decision. Um, he's just allowing the guy who's in front of him to push the pace. Even when he wins at times, the guy in front of him is pushing the pace and forcing sort of, you know, the dance or lead the dance. At 4-3, right? Adeshev suffers another loss here. He goes to 4-4, four four, be at 500. So his back's against the wall, but the reality is he is on the cusp of being a 500-level fighter. He got KO'd one punch by, by Nam in his UFC debut. That fight link is in the description. Watch that fight. He really got cold clocked. I'm not sure that Adeshev has a good chin or doesn't have a good chin, but in that fight, it was one punch, and that was it. Um, and Nam's a good fighter, but this is a 125-pound division. That was early in the first round. Definitely a little bit of a red flag there. We'll see how, you know, next few fights, we'll see if he gets knocked out again or anything like that happens again. Um, he had some finishes prior to the UFC, so he did have some finishes early on, but now in the UFC he doesn't have a single finish. The fights we watched in these two fighters were Rodriguez versus Corotulo, Adeshev versus Benoit, and Adeshev versus Nam. Those links are in the description to watch those fights um, if you want to take a look at it on your own. But these two guys I don't think are very evenly matched. This will be one of my favorites in the card. I'll probably place one of my bigger bets you know, three or four units, something in that range here on Clayton Rodriguez. I believe that he just simply is the better overall fighter, no matter how you put it. I think he's better on the feet. He's sharper. He's quicker. I think he's stronger. Um, I think he's more violent when he strikes with power. He's got better finishing ability. I think cardio-wise, that's probably where they're equal. And experience-wise, you do got to give a slight advantage to Adeshev because he's fought four UFC fights. Well, this will be his fourth one compared to Adeshev's. It's the first UFC fight. But all that said... When we first started talking about this breakdown, remember what I mentioned about Clayton Rodriguez? In his debut in, in Dana White Contender Series, you got this feeling that the guy was just a veteran. His presence, his calmness, his his striking was so clean. Um, and there was a lot of unknowns about him going to that fight. I remember I broke that down, didn't have much film to watch on him. I, I, I believe I was like up in the air, wasn't sure on whether I was going to wager on that fight or not. And if I did, I think I wagered against him because I remember watching the fight and thinking, Jesus, this kid looks tremendous. He looks so sharp. So, point point being being that he's not coming in here as a typical Dana White contender series winner. This guy seems to have the goods. I'm not I'm not surprised if he completely outclasses Adeshev, wins the fight all three rounds, 30-27. 
on the scorecards. Now, the surprise for me would be if Clayton Rodriguez pushes the pace and actually tries to get Adeshev out of there. Um, now, the fight going the distance to decision, either way, is minus 160. So it's a good number. Seems like the books know that the fight's most likely going the distance because, again, Clayton's not showing the killer instinct. Adeshev likes to circle. He doesn't engage very much. Um, so, again, minus 160, that might be a good spot. Now, Rodriguez, by decision, is plus 145. That's a better number than minus, minus 255. But I think what I'm going to do here is I'm going to load up on Rodriguez on the money line and go like four or five units straight up on Rodriguez to win the fight. I think that this guy is a slam dunk to win this fight. It'll be one of my top ticket parlay pieces as well. So I like Clayton Rodriguez to win the fight, to go to 8-1, and one, and probably fight at least one or two more times in 2022. Should have a very good good year. Just has a great fighting style. If you haven't watched him fight, take a look at that prior fight in Dana White Contender Series. The guy's sharp. He's on top of it. Um, I think you'll be impressed. That's my breakdown, guys. Good luck with this one. The main card opens up with a welterweight bout between the Brazilian Michelle Pereira versus the Russian Muslim Salikov. Salikov goes by King of Kung Fu. He's 18-2 overall, currently in a five-fight winning streak. He's 37 years old, 5'11 in height with 69.5-inch reach. He trains out of Burkett FC and Nova Uniao. As for Michelle Pereira, he goes by Demelador. I don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty nasty. The Demelador is 26-11 and 11 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He's out of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, 28 years old, 6'1 in height with 73-inch reach. He's out of Scorpion Fighting Systems. According to Tapology, it looks like Salikov is the favorite, getting 58% of the votes here. 42% of the votes are coming in for Pereira. I think Michelle Pereira is going to win the fight. I'll get that out the way right now. We'll break it down. We'll explain it. I'll give you my reasons why. Um, some more numbers here in the fighters. Michelle Pereira is landing 4.22 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.28 strikes per minute, so pretty good ratio. Salikov's landing 3.13 strikes per minute, absorbing 2.36. So similar for both fighters in that they're landing just about one more strike than they're receiving, but a little more output there for Michelle. As for takedown offense, Pereira's landing just over two takedowns per 15 minutes. Salikov's landing just over 1.12 takedowns per 15 minutes. Takedown defense, Pereira, Pereira is 100%, 81% for Salikov. So we'll see how the fight plays out. I don't imagine it'll be on the ground very much. Uh, I, I know for Pereira, he's going to want the fight to be on the feet. It's interesting that his numbers are so high for takedown offense because when you watch some of his film, especially his recent fights, most of the fight is on the feet. He doesn't really look to take down the fighter very much. These takedowns must be from his earlier fights where he was using his takedown offense more often because now he seems to be more of using his karate style, more of his striking right, offense. So Michelle so. Pereira is born and raised in Brazil. Started karate at the age of 12 years old. He's been a pro for 11 years. He's 4-2 in the UFC. His most notable wins are against Chaos Williams and Nico Price. His, pro, his, his most positive attributes, I believe, are that he's very athletic and a very unique like fighter. His stance is unique, hard to hit, hard to hit him clean. If you do hit, hit him, he's got his hands low, um, he's shifty, never gives you the same look. And so it could be hard for a fighter to figure him out. It could take them a round or two just to get used to his fighting style, whatever style that is. He's currently on a three-fight winning streak. Good finish rate. He's finished six of his eight wins. Um, sorry, six of his last eight wins. He's only been finished once in his career. It was by Dusko Todorovic, and that was back in the Serbian promotion, so it was years ago. Only two UFC losses are against Tristan Conley and an illegal knee which against Diego Sanchez, which is, you know, illegal knee. He didn't really lose the fight, but he kind of lost the fight. And Tristan Conley is a crafty veteran type of fighter, so not terrible losses. The concerns I have with Pereira. He has limited fighting experience against top-level talent. So he's got a good record, like a decent record overall, 26-11, but hasn't fought very high-level opponents. He's open to counter punches. His hands are low. 
He depends a lot on his athletic ability to avoid and slip punches. So his hands are low, doesn't really have his guard up, leaves himself open to counters, especially during heated exchanges. He's willing to depend upon the judges to win the fight. That's always scary. So in fights where he's been winning, like round one, round two, and round three, he'll let off the gas a little bit. That could be a problem. That's always scary if you're betting on a guy like this where round three comes around, he loses round three. Maybe he loses a 10-8 round, spoils a round one and two, ends up with a draw instead of winning the fight. A lot of scenarios could happen out of that, right? So um, an aggressive fighter, I believe, could be a problem for Pereira. A guy who just pushes pace, backs him up, crowds him. A fighter like Muslim Salakov, that can be a problem. We'll talk more about that. The last four losses for Michelle Pereira. He lost against Diego Sanchez. Yes, a legal knee, but still a loss. Tristan Connolly. Dusko Todorovic back in a Serbian promotion, and then Tulua Sibiaki. I know I'm saying that name wrong, but that's a 17 and 15 Chinese fighter. I'm bringing it up because either Michelle Pereira is an average fighter just doing well and you know making his way you know through his career, or he's grown and gotten better. I'm not sure which one it is. Has he grown from the time when he lost to Tulua Sibiaki, the Chinese fighter who's 17 and 15? Has he become a better fighter since then? It looks like it, but if he hasn't. Um, where he hasn't improved that much, that's the concern that he's not much better than that. Okay, so um, as for Muslim Salikov, he is an alumni of the famous Dagestani sports-dedicated boarding school called Five Decorations of the World, which, just a little bit of history there, it was founded right after the fall of the Soviet Union as a way to help like young guys in the streets stay out of trouble. It was initially just like a mixed martial arts um, you know, school teaching martial arts. Ended up creating like an actual school, academics, mathematics, the whole nine boarding school. They started to get their students in there. And he was one of the first um, students that was part of that program, which is still around. Other athletes have come into that program. They've been successful in all kinds of variety of sports, kickboxing and judo and everything else. So anyway, he's from Dagestan. Um, obviously phenomenal background, phenomenal grappling background. Came up through M1 Global and some other fighting promotions that were re pretty reputable. He made his UFC debut in 2017. He lost his debut to Alex Garcia by a rear naked choke. Now, after that loss, he's now won five straight fights in a row to have a 5-1 and one UFC record. He's been finished in both of his career losses. His biggest wins were against Lariano Starpoli and Francisco Trinaldo, which, you know, gives you a sense of his fighters, his fight, I guess, um, his fighter history. He hasn't had a chance to fight very high-level fighters, him or Pereira. This arguably could be their toughest opponent, each other. Uh, this fight right here. Some positive to like I'm Muslim Salakov. He at one point had a 13 fight winning streak during his career. He's got a pretty high finish rate overall. So 13 of his 18 wins are by finish. A balanced fighter, more balanced than Pereira in that he's got a better ground game, could fight in the feet, uh, lower leg kicks, has just an overall good attack. For Pereira, it's karate, it's striking, it's flashy knees, it's, it's jumping knees, it's, it's, it's spinning wheel kicks. It's exciting stuff on the feet, but the grappling game is limited. Um, he's got good submission defense, Solikov, that is. So when he has been against guys, guys who try to submit him, he's done a good job defending himself. And against, For example, against uh, Trinaldo, uh, he did a good job defending himself against submissions. He pushes the pace. This is his path to victory. If you like Solikov to win, it's gonna be, he's going to be in Pereira's face, pushing the pace, forcing Pereira to back up, forcing him to circle, and maybe that's enough to win in the scorecards. He does make very good use of his lower leg kick, Salikov, that is. So I do see him beating up the lead leg of Pereira, who, look, he's crafty. He's going to move, but he's going to still be present. He's a big guy. His leg should still be out there. I imagine Salikov gets to work on that front leg early and often. Now, my concern for Salikov, the obvious one is he's 37, okay? He's nine years older than Pereira. He's already showing signs to me recently that he's slowing down. His reaction time isn't great. You add that to the fact he's going to be 40 years old soon, it just it's a factor, right? Um, his finish rate has gone down a lot. So I mentioned before he's got a good finish rate overall in his career, and he does. 13 
of his 18 fights he's won by finish, but his last three wins have all been by decision. Um, controversial split decision win over Eli Zaleski back in 2020. I'm not going to bore you with that fight, but the bottom line is, in my opinion, I don't think he won the fight. Now, all but two media members had him winning the fight. Okay, so all the media members, except for two, has Zaleski winning the fight. Two of the three judges actually had Salakoff losing round one. I thought clearly Salakoff won round one, but one judge not only gave Salakoff round one, that judge gave Salakoff all three rounds, 30-27. And don't you know that that was the only mofo in the building that thought that was the case because no other judges gave it a 30-27. One judge gave the fight uh, to uh, Zaleski. The other judge had a 29-28 um, for Salakoff. Every single media member had the fight either for Zaleski and the two that had it for Salikov had a 29-28. So just a really weird fight that one of the three judges on, this, on, the, on the panel there had a 30-27 for Salikov when in fact no one else saw it that way. But in any case, he got the win. I'm making a big deal of it only because I think it's a mention of where Salikov is as a fighter. Like he is a good fighter. He does have a good record. But, like, I don't believe he's elite. I'm not even sure that Michelle Pereira is elite either. I mean, they are elite in the fact that they're fighting, obviously, in the UFC. They're top-level fighters in the world. Let me clarify that. But, like, in this division, like, I think there's a lot of guys that beat both of these guys, okay? And I think that the best version of Michelle Pereira, I want to emphasize that, the best version of Pereira, like a good camp, he comes in here, he has more output, he's in enough shape to get round one and two, last through round three, even if he loses round three, to win the fights, two, round, two rounds to one of the scorecards. I think that's the case that's what happens here. I don't think anyone gets hurt. The fight goes a distance. Now, <clears throat> the fights we watch for this breakdown, we watch Pereira versus Nico Price, 2021. Pereira versus Chaos Williams, 2020. Salikov versus Chernaldo, 2021. And Salikov versus Zaleski, 2020. Those four fights and those four links are in the description. Now, just some more information on the two fighters here. Compare them side by side. I do think that Pereira has a slight um, experience advantage. That's partially because he's fought more MMA bouts. Now, Salikov, he's been around the block. He's a little bit older. But Pereira comes from a very good pr promotional regional scene in Brazil where he was fighting before he went into the UFC. I give him the experience edge. In terms of fighter IQ, I give a slight edge to Salikov, and that's partially because of the record. Yes, the 18-2 record, high winning percentage. Seems to do just enough in the scorecard. He's a much better grappler, so I think he's a more well-rounded fighter, so slightly higher fighter IQ for most of Salikov. The fighter IQ is what you see there next to the fighter's photo if you're watching this on YouTube. If you're hearing this on the, on the uh, podcast and you're not, uh, this doesn't make any sense to you. But if you're listening to this on YouTube or seeing it, the Fighter IQ rating is right there next to their photo, which is the little green circles that are filled up. And you can see right here for both fighters, we have three and a half out of the five total circles filled. Both fighters have a good Fighter IQ rating. Um, but I think if you're really breaking it down to the actual details number, like down to the decimal, I'm giving Salikov a slight edge there. Uh, in terms of their cardio, I do think Salikov has an advantage there. He is older, but Pereira has shown signs recently that round three, not great. Uh, finishing ability, about equal for both fighters. Boxing-wise, Pereira's a sharper boxer, better combinations, a little quicker. But man, Salikov throws some bombs, you know, and so they're both pretty good boxers, about equal. Grappling-wise, I give an edge there to Salikov. Now, the best prop, I think, for this fight Fight goes a distance, minus 140. That's probably going to get hit by a lot of people because these two fighters are durable. Pereira is athletic enough to avoid punishment. Um, Salikov, I mean, look, in Salikov, some of his fights, he's been cracked. He showed a chin. I don't think Pereira is going to crack him. Pereira doesn't show knockout power, at least not recently. I see it going to the scorecards, minus 140. Fight goes a distance. The other prop I like, Salikov by KO, plus 350. I might put something on that, maybe not something aggressive, but a quarter unit. To a half unit because I do think if Salikov pushes the pace, 
It would be a KO more like a TKO where he overwhelms Pereira, backs up Pereira. Pereira's like, okay, I had enough. Balls up. Muslim Salakov overwhelms him in round three and finishes the job. So, you know, this this should be an interesting fight. It's going to be a, a good fight from the standpoint that it's going to probably be three full rounds of decent action. You're going to see some exciting strikes from Pereira. Muslim Salakov is not going to be an easy out. So even if Pereira is ahead in the fight, Salakov's going to be working, coming back. Um, if Pereira doesn't, you know, keep himself in order, he get himself in trouble with Salakov, who throws some really heavy, heavy hits. Not as much volume as Pereira as the numbers obviously show, but Salakov does that typical Russian, Dagestani, drop your head, huge looping overhand right. And Pereira having a karate stance, having that karate background, standing up nice and tall, one of those hits can change the entire course of the fight. So we'll see how the fight goes. I like Pereira to win the fight. He's currently minus 120-ish on the money line. It's a pick him basically. It could flip. He could become a slight dog. Either way, you know, I think the, the way I want to remind um, the listeners here while I'm choosing Pereira, the best version of Pereira, the best version of Pereira is definitely going to be sharper than a 37-year-old Muslim Salakov. And I like Salakov. Mad respect to the Russian guy. I feel like I'm going to regret going against the Russian Dagestani, right? But I just think the best version of Pereira, a guy who's approaching his prime right now versus a guy who's leaving his prime, Pereira should win the fight. And if Pereira loses the fight, it's because Salakov is using his veteran savvy and Pereira has made some key mistakes. That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this one. Next up, we have a middleweight bout between two fighters with a lot of KO finishes in the background. The American fighter Joaquin Buckley versus Abdul Razak Hassan from Ghana. Hassan goes by Judo Thunder. He's 11-4 overall. 2-3 in his last five fights. 36 years old. 5-10 in height with 73-inch reach. He trades at a 40th MMA. As for Buckley, he goes by Numansa. 13-4 overall. 3-2 in his last five fights. He's from St. Louis, Missouri. 27 years old. 5-10 in height with 76-inch reach. He's at a Finney's hit squad. So... Basic information there, the same height, but a three-inch reach advantage there for Buckley and a nine-year youth advantage for Buckley. I don't think the 36-year-old Hassan is by any means getting, you know, old, um, but he is older. You know, nine years is a big difference. A 27-year-old Buckley, who's a very good athlete, um, does it play a factor? I'm not sure how much of a factor, but it's something to at least consider. We'll talk more about it. Now, looking at topologies of public votes coming in here, um, 65% of the votes are coming in for Buckley, only 35% of the votes coming in for Hassan. I, I like Buckley in my first initial glance at this fight. I, you know, I thought, oh, you know, younger, explosive. Um, both of them have wonderful finishing ability. Al Hassan's got a little bit of a cardio issue that I remember just offhand. And so I initially was thinking this is Joaquin Buckley's to fight to win. And of course, the money line suggests him as a slight favorite around minus 145 to minus 150. But after looking at it closer, you know, look, if Abdul Al Hassan can catch him within that first, let's say, first round, okay, I think he could finish Buckley. Now, the problem is, if it goes beyond the first round, you, you you tend to see Abdul slowing down a lot. Cardio becomes an issue. We'll talk more about this. Let's look more at the striking numbers here for Buckley. He's landing 4.16 strikes per minute, doing 4.21. So pretty much equal output versus, output versus input. Not great. You know, just sort of tells you, you know, he's, he's got decent volume. Um, but not great stand-up defense. Um, for Al-Hassan, he's landing 3.71 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.23, so even worse. Um, so he's landing less um, and absorbing more. Um, so not great either way for both fighters. For Abdul, one of the things that he does, and Joaquin does it as well, they look for the perfect shot. Um, so they're fighting a guy who's got a little more high volume. They'll tend to suffer the scorecards because they're looking for the perfect shot. They're throwing bigger shots, um, higher energy shots, uh, less less combinations. And so what ends up happening is in the scorecards, they tend to lose in the scorecards against guys that are a little more high volume, better boxers, a little sharper. So for takedown offense, neither guy's very busy there, okay? 0.8 takedowns per 15 minutes for Buckley. 
So pretty much uh, less than a takedown per three-round fight. In the same case for Al-Hassan, 0.53 takedowns per 15 minutes. So neither guy should look to take down a fight. Um, I could see Buckley trying at least one time. He'll tend to do that at the end of a round. It's a high fighter IQ move in his part to try to get a takedown late in the round, but he's not very good at it. And if he's tired, you know, it's not very effective. Now, for takedown defense, Buckley's defending at 100% rate and Al-Hassan at 55% rate. And that is one of the things with Al-Hassan. If you've watched some prior fights on him, um, there's some links in the description, some fights that we looked at breaking down this film. And one of the things you notice about him against guys like Malkoon, for example, um, and other fighters, let me look at his topology here. So against Malkoon and against uh, Lazez, yeah, those two fights. But, you know, Ab Abdul spends so much time on his back and is unable to get up, both because his technique is not there to get up, and secondly, he's very tired. So if he gets into a situation with a fighter who actually takes him to the ground, and with Buckley, you know, it should be noted, he's got a wrestling background. He did wrestle in high school, started wrestling around ninth grade, so he's got four years of wrestling. Um, didn't wrestle in college, but he's got wrestling experience. If he were to take Abdullah Hassan down, especially round two and round three, he could squeeze out those rounds with his scorecards just from position, you know, points alone. So it's something to consider. Will Joaquin do it? I don't know. He likes to he likes to bang. He likes to throw punches. He likes to work on, on his feet. The numbers obviously suggest that, but it just should be noted for Abdullah Hassan. One of the biggest parts of his game that's a weakness is the um, takedown defense, and 55% is I think kind because if he fights against a guy. Who's good takedowns? I mean, that number is going to be zero takedown defense. So, um, looking at some more notes here on the fighters, let's start with Buckley first. So, he was born and raised in St. Louis. His mom unfortunately passed away when he was very young, when he was in sixth grade. Grew up with his grandmother. Started wrestling in high school. He's a southpaw. Um, if you watch him fight, he doesn't change stances. So he's in southpaw stance the entire time. If he gets in trouble, someone starts kicking his lead leg. He does not change stances. He's a southpaw through and through. Um, he went pro 2014. He went 2-0 and in LFA. He went 3-2 and in Bellator before the UFC. He's 3-2 and now currently in the UFC. He made his, his UFC debut in 2020 versus Kevin Holland. That's a fight. <clears throat> I'd encourage you to watch that fight. The link's in the description. Now, I granted it's two years ago now. It's 2022 at this point. But, man, it shows you how elite a guy like Kevin Holland is with striking, his in-and-out game, um, his awkwardness, his, you know, his length. Um, Buckley had a very hard time in that fight dealing with, with that. He got knocked down once, I think, in round one or two, then ends up getting TKO'd in round three with um, just a real hard one-two count, you know, not, not a counter, just a one-two punch by, by, by Holland. It pointed out something to me about Buckley that I noticed. He, he tends to react a little slow, especially as the fight goes on. Um, he's not the quickest of, 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 of foot when it comes to that. Like, he's a powerful guy. He has explosiveness. But he's not very, very quick. And with a guy like Kevin Holland, you see that, like the the, the quickness of Kevin Holland, it was a little bit of a thing. It's kind of hard for, for, for Buckley to deal with. Anyway, um, so he won performance of the night three times, by the way, against Ipa Kasanganai, Jordan Wright, and Antonio Arroyo. Three very nice finishes there by Buckley. He got 22 knockout of the year. He's two into, I'm sorry, I mentioned before he's already three into the UFC. He took the O from Ipa Kasanganai and Jordan Wright. So both those guys were undefeated when they went up against Buckley and he beat them both those guys. So, He's got a high finish rate, um, five straight wins by by TKO right now for Joaquin Buckley. Um, he's going to have a three-inch advantage, as we discussed here, over Hassan. Solid kicks, man. This guy has got a very solid kicking game, and not just kicking game maybe to the lower body, to the body, to the head. For a guy who's very built, Joaquin Buckley looks like almost a bodybuilder. He's very flexible. He gets the legs way up there in his opponents. Kicks to the head are not a problem for him. Um, I thought his cardio was very good in all the film I watched. For a guy who's built like that, you kind of expect the cardio to be a little bit of an issue. He's so jacked. Doesn't seem to fade. Does a pretty good job into round three and has some round three finishes. Um, displayed a very good chin against Arroyo. I want to mention that. Even though he's been finished before, against Arroyo, he took some pretty hard strikes. Took a flying knee at one point to the to the chin. Dealt with it well. 
show that he's got a pretty good gym because in, a, in another fight before he got finished, I think it was more of a flash knockout. You know, against against Holland, he was just over overmatched, wasn't ready for that. It was his UFC debut. Um, but overall, I think Joaquin Buckley has a pretty good chin. Now, some concerns I have about Buckley. He's been finished um, in two of his last last two losses. He's been finished in both those fights. Okay, um, he lacks notable wins. So his toughest opponents to, so far that he's beaten, his most notable opponents he's got on his record are Jordan Wright and Nipikasaganai. Decent fighters, but doesn't have a fight against somebody that's very notable. Low volume at times. Sometimes he really slows down his output, looking for the perfect strike, looking for the perfect opportunity. And so, you know, seconds, you know, 10, 20, 30 seconds will, will, click, will click off the clock, and he has not thrown anything. That's not great in a fight that goes the distance. Now, this fight probably will knock the distance, but I'm just saying in general, not a very high output fighter. Um, his stand-up defense is not great. That concerns me with Buckley. Here you have a guy like Al-Hassan who's going to look to swing. He's going to swing hard. He's going to throw some combinations, but he's going to throw with a lot of violence. Um, when I've watched what film on Buckley, and I'll encourage you to watch film as well, he gets hit too much on his feet. You know, he got KO'd by DiCirico with a very, very clean shot. You know, he got knocked down cleanly by Holland several times. Um, took a lot of clean shots from Arroyo. You know, he showed a chin against Arroyo, but man, took a lot of shots against Arroyo. Now, for Abdul Al Razak Al Hassan, born in Ghana, has a black belt in judo. Um, 22 years as a judo martial artist. That's why he got a little bit of a late start here in, um, in, uh, in uh, mixed martial arts. He went pro 2013. He won his pro debut in 23 seconds. The guy has had several finishes within the first minute of the first round. Um, he fought in Bellator and LFA part, part of the UFC. He went 6-4 and four before signing with the UFC. He's 5-4, and four, though, now in the UFC. He's married, has two children. If you don't know his story, he got accused years back, 2018, three years or so ago, Interrupted his career for a little bit. He got accused of rape by two women. Um, ended up going to trial the whole nine, and he was acquitted on all the charges. Um, you know, he did, he you know he claims you know that he he had consensual relationships with these women and whatever else, and then he turned around and accused him of rape. But it was an ugly point in his his life, a part where it was very stressful. He got through it. If you haven't heard about it, I mean, obviously you look up the details, but you know, for yourself, from all intents and purposes, it literally was a false accusation, and um, the poor guy went through a lot. So married, has some children. God bless him, you know, second opportunity at life. And um, whenever I see him fight, I kind of think about the guy like he's been through a lot. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, rooting for him a little bit, right? So his most notable wins, he beat Chaos Williams. Or, I'm sorry, most notable, most notable opponents. He fought Chaos Williams, Amari Akhmedov, and Alicio DiCirico. His biggest wins, he beat DiCirico by TKO and Nico Price by TKO. Positives about Al-Hassan. A lot of UFC experience, right? This will be his 10th UFC fight. High finish rate. 11 and 4 is his career record. He's got 11 wins by TKO. He's got KO power in his hands and feet equally. Um, he's only been finished one time in his career, and it was a flash knockout by Chaos Williams. Now, Chaos Williams, um, he's a thug, man. I mean, that, I mean that in the most positive way. Like, guy got hands. He's going to throw. And so it's not, you know, it's not horrible to say, hey, he got knocked down, flash knockout by a guy who throw, throws throw hard hands. It was just a moment. It happened. I don't think that Al Hassan has like a chin issue. He got decked. It was a quick knockout, really, really quick. So I'm um, funny because he dishes out quick knockouts, and that in that fight he was the victim of a quick knockout. My concerns on Al Hassan, obviously 36 years old. He's older, nine years older. Um, his takedown defense is awful. If Joaquin does try to grapple him or wrestle him, he will not be able to get up. Um, he's been on a three fight losing streak at one point in the UFC, and he had a 30 second knockout loss in round one to Chaos Williams during that streak. Many of his early fights on his on his record, he's only 11 and 4, 15 total fights, but many of his early fights, like his first seven-ish, six-ish fights, whatever, those KOs were against guys that were very, very, very low level. Let's just put it that way, below 500 level uh, type of fighters. Now, he's lost three of his last four fights, so he's not on a hot streak by any means right now. He does need to obviously get himself back in the win column. 
He was a minus three fifty favorite against Lizez, and he lost that fight by a one sided decision, like thirty twenty seven in all three judges' scorecards. He was a minus three ten favorite against Malcoon. He lost that fight as well. I think all three judges had it thirty twenty seven, except for one judge who had uh, um, twenty nine twenty eight. So has not been great when he's been a, when he's been a strong favorite. Cardio wise, serious slip in in energy once you get past the midway point of round one. Um, against the fight against Lizez, for example, he's beating the hell out of Lizez, or what looks like he's beating Lizez in that fight. And Lizez is just, you know, blocking the punches up against the fence, letting this guy basically blow his proverbial wad. And what ends up happening is Abdul Raza, Abdul ends up with very low energy as the end of round one finishes. And you can see now Lizez is picking up the energy. I want to say one judge gave that round to Al-Hassan. And I was surprised. When you look at the judges' scorecards in that fight, I would have thought all of them would have had Al-Hassan winning round one. But what ends up happening is, again, it's early in the round. <clears throat> Al-Hassan's going off, throwing all these punches. Some of them getting blocked. By the middle point of the round, he slows down. The rest of the fight, Al-Hassan was unable to do anything, unable to land anything significant, could not keep up with the pace and pressure, the volume, got taken down, was couldn't get up, the whole nine. So cardio is an issue, and for me, what ends up happening with him, and it makes perfect sense here, as his cardio creeps into and becomes an issue, round two-ish, you know, mid-round two, mid-round two, definitely by round three, his power goes right with it, <laughs> okay? So... Whatever opportunity he has to win the fight, which is most likely through a knockout, he has not done well in the scorecards. You know, that's not been his path to victory. And both these guys have ridiculous finish rates. Looking up at their finish rates, for example, for um, Buonkey Buckley, he has a 75% finish rate. So when he's winning, 75% of the time, it's going to be by a KO. And the same thing for um, Ahasan. He's got a 100% finish rate. So these guys are high-level finishers. His fight probably does not go the distance. And a matter of fact, that prop... Is minus 350. So the books know that. The fight not going to decision is going to be minus 350. I don't know if I'm going to bet that. If I do, maybe I might parlay it. Because I agree, this fight just probably does not go to the distance. At some point, someone either connects. I think that's Abdul, actually, who connects. I think that Joaquin Buckley just allows himself to get hit too much. Now, to finish the fight, it's plus 115 for Buckley. To finish the fight for Abdul Razak, it's plus 190. I don't have by KO or submission. I would go by KO if I had to choose. But it's not available right now on any of the... Um, websites I've been looking at. So all I have is the finish uh, prop, which is plus 190 again for Abdul, plus 115 for Buckley. So those are the props I kind of like. Minus 350 for the fight, not going to decision. I, I guess that's the safest you know spot to be in. I think what ends up happening here, though, is that Abdul Razak Hassan connects early on Buckley. He just tests the chin of Buckley, and I think you know Buckley allows a little bit of ex enough of exposure, and Abdul wins the fight. You know, I want to say 36-year-old Buckley has the experience, you know, 22 years in, in, in other mixed martial arts like judo. He'll pace himself, you know, but I haven't seen that. You know, unfortunately, he slows down in all of his fights in round two or three. If you're Buckley, and I like Buckley, and I, you know, I kind of, part of me rooting for him. I like the wrestlers, the high school wrestlers, right? Um, it's going to be take this fight to round two and three. Take this fight to deeper waters. Exhaust Abdul Al-Hassan. Look to get him into, you know, tough situations. Look to finish the fight that way. Maybe Abdul will ball up on the ground. And Joaquin is just, you know, pounding on pounding on, you know, hammer fist and finishes the fight that way. So, but in terms of the sharp striker who's going to finish the fight with like a knockout, like a one punch KO, I think that favors Abdul. I think he's the one with the with the with the with the greater power here. I think he's the one who's a better better like KO ability early in the fight. So if there's an early, let's say flurry, where both guys are like, hey man, f it, let's just start fighting middle of the octagon. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if that does happen. At that point, if you're rooting for Buckley, you got to be like really thinking Jesus. And if you're rooting for Buckley, you're saying, well, no, Abdul got knocked out by Cass Williams. Yes, that's true. Abdul's been clean knocked out like 26 seconds, 25 seconds in the first round. So it could happen either one. 
this fight may not go to the, get out of the first round. So let's see what happens here. I think the fight most likely, the props available for the under, take that prop. But I like Abdul Hassan as a slight dog here. He's at plus 125 on the money line. It's more of a pick him. I'm going to stick with him to win the fight. I think at 36 years old, it's the it's it's the good old phrase of it's either shit or get off the pot, man. It's his time. It's now or never. I think for Buckley, I like his game. I like a lot of what he brings to the table. Um, I think the one big issue I have for him again is on the feet. His his take. I mean, his, his boxing defense, his striking defense. <coughs> excuse me, not good. Specific note, right? He tends to drop his head to the left. He drops to the left. He does it consistently. So whenever a punch comes at him or a kick, any kind of strike, <clears throat> excuse me, I need a drink here. It's a habit he has. Um, it's more of a habit, like a click. When you watch him on film, you'll see what I mean. So let's say if someone throws a punch at him, it's not a backward head movement or to the right, to the left. It's not, um, you know, a certain type of, you know, maybe using his hand to, to block the to block the block the punch. If someone throws any kind of a jab or kick at him, even if it's a distance, like far from him, he immediately responds, is dropped to the left. It's almost like, a, like I said, almost like just a habit by nature. And so what ends up happening is when he gets into like a strike, you know, a striking battle with somebody, when he's looking to dip out of punches or strikes, he will drop to the left. That's what happened against DiCirico. He dropped to the left and DiCirico threw a, a right kick and it hit him right in the head, clean. And so... He drops to the left with his hands down. He doesn't drop to the left with his hands, you know, covering his, you know, his face with his guard up. So that's a big issue. You know, if Hassan has watched the film, I'm sure he has. He's got decent kicks. Obviously, um, you know, well, you know, well versed mixed martial artist. He's probably going to look for that. And if he drops his head, I see that being an issue for Buckley, not just in this fight, but every fight for the rest of his career until he trains, until he trains himself to get out of that tick. It's a tick. It's some kind of a weird, like I said, in instinct for him. Like, he's not even hurt, but it's like by instinct. He's looking to avoid punches. He drops to the left, and he's just open there for, you know, some kind of a counter punch. So, anyway, I like, you know, Abdul Hassan to win the fight. Am I shocked that Joaquin Buckley pulls off a win somehow? No. Am I shocked that he goes to the decision? Yes. The fight probably does go to the decision. So, good luck with this fight, guys. I'm going to take Hassan. We're up to the co-main event here for UFC Fight Night 201. It's a women's bout in the flyweight division between the American Caitlin Chukagan and the Brazilian fighter Jennifer Maia II. Maia is 19-7-1 overall, a veteran to the UFC, 3-2 in her last five fights. She's 33 years old, 5'4 in height with a 64-inch reach. She's out of shoot box monstro. As for Chukagan, who goes by the blonde fighter, she's 16-4 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights. She's from Jersey City, New Jersey, but she hails now out of Quakertown, um, Pennsylvania, which is roughly oh, 35 minutes from me, so not too far. 33 years old, 5'9 in height with a 68-inch reach. She's out of all-star Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, breakdowns on these two fighters, very hard for me to gain an edge. I'm going to tell you that right now before I start diving into this. I felt like I liked Chukagan clear-cut, initial breakdown. And then I started seeing some things about both fighters that made this a pick -em. This is ultimately going to be one of the closest fights in the card. Hard to find a side to lean on. Probably going to go to decision. We're going to talk about that prop. Now, according to the public vote here, Drew Kagan's getting 82% of the votes here on Tapology. Only 18% coming in from Maya. I'm not sure why it's such a disparity there. Uh, the money line is a little closer with Drew Kagan at minus 170 and Maya plus 150. It opened up a little more like a pick'em, but now it's starting to balloon in favor of Drew Kagan. 
again, I think I like Jukagan to win the fight. I think, and, and the reason is probably the same reason every capper is going to talk about this. Everybody who talks about this fight is going to say the same thing. Jukagan has a very high output. Probably will win on the scorecards because of the output. This fight probably goes to decision, right? Now, striking numbers here. Chukagan's landing 4.57 strikes per minute. <clears throat> Excuse me. Absorbing 4.37. Decent ratio, but not great. But pretty high volume, right? For Maya, she's landing 3.80 strikes per minute. A little less than Chukagan. Absorbing 3.97. So just about the same output versus input for both fighters. But again, as we talked about, Chukagan's a little bit more higher volume. There's also a little bit of a quirk in the way Chukagan fights. If you've never heard her fight or seen her fight, there's some links in the description to prior, prior fights of hers if you want to watch those links or those films. She does like a, she yaps, <laughs> if I could say it anyway. She kind of yaps, yells, does some kind of like karate call. Every time she strikes, like every punch, every kick, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, though it's annoying maybe for some people, it's sort of like a, a subliminal mental reminder to the referees that she's she's attempting a strike. Uh, maybe she's landing it. I don't know. Um, but she's just an active fighter. Very good cardio. Both fighters have very good cardio. I want to say they both have shown very good cardio. They both have gotten to you know four or five round fights and have been sharp in those four or five round fights. Um, for takedown offense, I expect this fight to be on the on the fight uh, to be on the feet the entire fight. Looking at the numbers here, you can see Caitlin Chukagan is only landing a quarter of a takedown per fifteen minutes, and pretty much the same thing for Maya. So. That's a quarter of a takedown per three rounds. This is going to be a three-round fight. I expect any grappling may be like grappling against the cage. But this fight stays on the feet. The only way it ends up on the mat is if somebody attempts a kick, slips, and the other fighter somehow wants to engage on top. But again, I, I find it you know very unlikely. Takedown defense is the same for both fighters as well. 52% for Chukagan, 53% for Maya. See, as you can look at these numbers here, do you see understand why now it starts to become a very hard fight to pick uh, a person you think is going to win? Um, they're just very closely matched, um, even age-wise, even age-wise, you know, so you've got uh, Chukagan here at, uh, excuse me a second, I'm sorry, if I find my screen, she's 33 years old, and Maya's 33 years old, right, so, you know, I thought Chukagan was younger, just, you know, before I did the pre-fight breakdown, because you just assume Maya's a little older, her name's been around a while, she's got interesting topology, but they're the same age, you know, so um, height-wise, there is an advantage there for Chukagan at five inches taller, at five foot nine versus five foot four against Maya, Reach-wise, there's also an advantage there for Chukagan, which should bode well for her, again, on the scorecards. Again, the more active fighter. If you ask Chukagan, how do you want to win this fight, right? She'd probably tell you, and the coach would tell you, nice striking, pretty striking, good footwork. She's got a karate background. She started karate at, like, the age of five years old. She still has that technique, you know? Not that it's because she was, you know, at five years old, but you have to point her foundations in karate. She still fights that way. Um, can I say, like, kind of almost like a Steven Thompson a little bit? Kind of like that kind of fighter where she's quirky. It's to her benefit. She's awkward. She changes, you know, levels. She changes positions. Um, you know, she's smooth in there. And she is a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So there's a lot of reasons to like, you know, Chukagan. Um, some more background on, Ch on Chukagan. So I mentioned that she's from Quakertown, Pennsylvania. But I found it interesting because she goes by, you know, the blonde fighter or whatever. She's actually got Armenian roots. And if you know anything about people from Armenia, they tend to have, like, very dark hair. Matter of fact, um... Kim Kardashian and her family, they have Armenian blood. I'm not sure if it's from the mother's side or her father's side or both sides, but Armenians tend to have very dark hair. She's a blonde. I'm not sure if she's a natural blonde, but either way, she's a blondie. It doesn't look Armenian, but uh, just interesting little tidbit about her background. So she started karate at the age of four years old. Correction, I said five years old earlier. Four years old. Started her amateur career in 2012. She's out of Renzo Gracie combat team um, and all-star Brazilian jiu-jitsu. She trains at both of those two gyms, and those are both past and present. I'm not sure which one she's at right now. But the point is she has a very good foundation, very good teammates, very good training partners. You know, this part of the United States, the Northeast, 
Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York. Um, we're blessed to have a lot of very, very solid gyms. Shout out to NPR Endurance right here in the area. Great, great MMA gym where uh, they have some fighters. Anyway, she's a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Her made her pro, pro debut in 2014. She's a former CFFC women's flyweight and a bantamweight champion. If you don't know, CFFC, which is a very, very good regional promotion here in the Northeast United States, uh, so she held her own there. She has the second most wins in women's UFC flyweight history. Just interesting little stat there. Kind of gives you an idea of her longevity. The second most wins in UFC women's flyweight history. She's tied for the second most total fights in women's UFC flyweight history as well. So she's been around the flyweight division for a while. She's held her own. She's got a you know a winning you know a, a winning percentage that's very impressive at sixteen and four. She's um, got a bachelor's degree from Fairleigh Dickinson University, so she is an educated young lady. Um, she's got a four-year degree. Um, shout out to Fairleigh Dickinson University here in New Jersey. Not here in New Jersey. I'm not in New Jersey. I'm Pennsylvania, but not too far away. So now, interesting little fact about these two fighters. They've shared a lot of common fighters. Both of them have fought Joanne Wood, Alexis Davis, Jessica I, Valentina Shevchenko, Jessica Andrade, and Liz Carmouche. So that's six total fighters they've both shared the octagon with. Varying results. Some of them have won those fights. Some of them have lost those fights. Some of them have lost in different fashion. Like, for example, Kagan fought Shevchenko, and she got TKO'd. Maya fought Shevchenko, and they went to decision. At that, you know, first glance, you're like, whoa, wait a second. Shevchenko's a good measuring stick. Kagan couldn't hold up, ended up getting TKO'd, whereas Maya went to distance. So we'll talk more about that. Some pros on Kagan, things that I really like a lot about her game. Excellent kicking game. That goes back to the karate. So her kicking game is active. Um, I love the way she knocked down Araju in their front in their fight with a front kick. And it wasn't a knockdown where Araju was hurt. It was just she had a nice, powerful, that's that, like, lift the leg up, straight front kick. She hit Araju right in the mid midsection, right in the stomach area, and just knocked her down. Araju popped back up. It wasn't an injury. She wasn't hurt. Wind wasn't knocked out. Just shows you the variety of her kicking game and how powerful she could be. Uh, I mentioned her awkward fighting style. Again, it's hard to get a read on her. If you're coming in here, Jennifer Mai is a veteran, so it's going to help. And Maya's watch film on her. Maya knows who, they, who she is. Matter of fact, they fought before. Ding, ding, ding. I should have mentioned that earlier. They did fight before, and Chukagan won that fight. We'll talk about that in a second. But the point is, um, they know each other. They know their styles a little bit. But Chukagan is still an awkward fighter. Even though Maya's going to have people in her camp, they're going to help you know, imitate that. Um, she's going to watch film. It's still awkward. You know, There's no way to plan exactly what Chukagan's going to do because her, her movements are very unique. Okay. Um, she defended well against the grappling and submission attempts um, by Araju in her last fight. I did like that about you, Kagan. So even though there's not going to be a lot of grappling here, when she has been grappled heavy or tried to get submitted by Araju in their last fight, she showed a very, very good brown belt BJJ. She had you know a good defense. She was able to stay out of submissions. Got close, but she defended them well. She's had notable competition and quality losses. So for example, she lost round three TKO to Valentina Shevchenko, round one TKO to Jessica Andrade, Split decision losses to Jessica I and Liz Carmouche. So quality opponents, quality losses. Now her most notable wins and probably her biggest wins of her career, there's just some common names, I mean, some household names you, you probably recognize. Cynthia Cavallo, Vivian Arajo, Antina, Ant Antonina Shevchenko, not Valentina, but the sister Antonina, Jennifer Maya the first time, Joanne Wood, Alexis Davis, Irene Aldana, Sajara Eubanks, Lauren Murphy, and she beat Andrea Lee in an amateur bout years back. But the point is, decent quality win. High volume fighter, active fighter. She's fighting an average of about 2.2 to 2.3 fights per year. She's never lost back-to-back -back fights. That's always good to know. Um, she's on a two-fight MMA winning streak right now. So I emphasize MMA because she had a grappling bout against uh, 
who was that? She grappled against, and I don't count this as an MMA bout. She grappled against Jillian Robertson. She lost that in, back in August. So anyway, um, that's the breakdown I have on Chukagan. You know, there's a lot of positives there. I mean, that's the that's part of the breakdown. The concerns I have in Chukagan, she lacks finishing ability. That's an obvious point. She has no finishes in the UFC. Period. Right. So high volume, but little power behind her strikes. When you watch her fight, it's noticeable on film. You see it. A lot of volume. You know, it's it's it looks good in the speed bag, but. There's just not a lot of twerk behind, you know, her her hips. There's not a lot of twerk in her shoulders. It's just a lot of tapping. Okay, so she's not a high high level finisher. She comes up short against elite level competition. Now, is Jennifer Maya elite level competition? I think it would be disrespectful to say she's not on the cusp of elite. Um, she's in that category, um, but I would say, you know, she's not. For example, Jessica Jessica Andrade or Valentina Shevchenko. So. I don't know that that matters, but in fights where Chukagan has had to fight elite-level fighters, she kind of comes up short in those situations. Um, she had a hard time getting up against Vivian Arajo in their last fight, so it took her a good like two minutes or so. She was on her back. Does it matter for this fight? No, but I'm just mentioning it. Her get-up game at times is to be desired. Um, she's been finished in both of her most recent losses. Is that a sign? Um, she's 33. I think there was some talk a few fights ago, pre-fight in an interview, where she said that you know she's at that point of looking to put a bow on it and wrap it up, you know, um, and maybe get a ring on it, you know, too, where she's looking to maybe settle down, start a family. So this is like, this is one of those things where she's been finished in two of her last, you know, last two fights. Um, she wasn't finished before that at all in her career. So what is that showing me? Um, well, good opponents, you know, it was Andrade and Shevchenko. That's one thing to consider. Both very high level opponents. Is Maya capable of doing that? I see this vision of where Maya will back her up and maybe crowd Chukagan and hurt her, hit her with a body shot, um, and really test her will, her desire to be in the cage anymore and keep fighting. I think a bad loss here by Chukagan, where Maya overwhelms her and does batter her up, could be the sign of, of, of Chukagan starting to pack it up for good. Whereas here I am doubting Chukagan, who is a very good fighter, who's on a two-fight winning streak, who has looked good, um, he's got a lot of skills, who's probably preparing like hell for this fight, is in a good camp, is in a good gym, good coaches. She should do well and should win the fight. I just worry a little bit about some of those other question marks um, and being finished again in her last two losses. Let's talk about Jennifer Maya. She was born and raised in Brazil, was a soccer player growing up around the age of 15, went over to MMA. She actually started off as a boxer. She fought a good amount of boxing matches, so that lends to her striking ability. That's why her, her hands look so fluid and looks very natural for her to fight on her feet. She went pro in 2009, so 11, 12 years ago. Um, she fought in Invicta prior to UFC. She was the former Invicta flyweight champion. She's 4-3 and three in the UFC, so <clears throat> okay record there. Um, both of them fought Shevchenko, like I mentioned earlier, but Maya went to decision where Shevchenko got finished. Her most notable opponents, Shevchenko, Jessica Andrade, and Liz Carmouche. Her biggest wins against Roxanne Monteferri twice, 2019 and 2016. For what that's worth, Roxanne Monteferri, I know... Maybe not elite level by any means, but still a household name gives you sort of a, at least a measuring point. I think Jennifer Maya and Kaylee Kagan are like better than Roxanne Modafferi, you know, towards the end of her career. Uh, Jessica Andrade, she beat her back in 2012, long time ago, you know, almost 10 years ago, but still a nice winner in her career. And then she beat Jessica, Jessica I in 2021. Now, Jessica I is, again, another measuring stick. I, I don't know that it's like a, a big time career win, just a measuring stick. The pros on Jennifer Meyer, things I like about her. She's got veteran experience, active fighter, averages just over two fights per year. She's never lost two fights in a row. My concerns on her, very low finish rate, one finish in her last 11 fights. So I told you how I have a vision of her like crowding Chukagan and finishing Chukagan. The numbers suggest that won't happen. Okay, so when you're looking here at a prop bet, 
you can't ignore the prop bet of the fight going the distance at minus 280. That may be the safest spot to be. But the, by the time this fight closes, Chukagin's going to be around a minus 200 favorite, right? You could take that and be like, all right, I like Chukagin. It goes to the scorecard, split decision. It's going to be really sweaty. I like that minus 280 spot at fight going to the distance. That makes the most sense to me. Even after doing this breakdown and talking, it makes more and more sense to me. Maya does not finish Chukagin. Chukagin is a veteran herself. Will stay safe enough. Will circle, avoid you know any serious punishment. She'll be on her bicycle. It's only a three-round fight. It's not five rounds. They both got good cardio. It shouldn't be a problem. The fight probably goes to decision, decision at minus 280. Now, by decision for either fighter, Kaylin Chukagan is plus 105 by decision. And then you got Maya at plus 270 by decision, which really caught my attention. I thought it would have been closer to where Chukagan was at. But plus 270, if you like Maya to win the fight, that's really got to be a spot you want to consider. I mean, plus 150 in the money line is not bad either for Maya just to win outright, however that is. But she probably doesn't finish her, as we just talked about. So um, just some further notes here. Um, oh, on Maya, same same kind of condition that Chukagan suffers from. Whenever they fight high-level, high-level fighters tend to come up short. That's where they're having some problems. And so are either one of them elite or high-level? Not sure. Great matchup for a co-main event. It's going to be tight. It's probably going to go to decision. Um, that's my guesstimate. There's a few links in the description there, about four or five in total of the prior fights on these two fighters that we looked at when we were breaking down the fight. And again, I just want to emphasize, I have a hard time leaning here on which fighter I like the most. I think the prop bet by decision minus 280 is going to be the spot I'm going to be the hardest on in terms of where I'm the most, I'm sorry, most confident on, on where I bet in this fight. But I don't know that I'm going to bet either way. I'm picking Chukagan to win the fight. I'm thinking it's going to be a split decision. It's going to be very close. And I would really caution anyone betting this fight with confidence that really slow down just re-look re at everything here. Um, you know, Before you get a hard lean here, it's a women's bout. They're both durable. They're both veterans. Very equally matched. I would not put too much dough on either side of this fight. So best of luck with this one, guys. That's the breakdown. I know a little bit lengthy here, but this one's a tough one. I don't have a, I don't have a solid lean. Leave some comments. How do you feel about this fight? Who do you think is going to win the fight? How are they going to win the fight? Um, I'm always reading the comments. I could use any feedback before the you know the book closes here on this, but I like Chukagan to win probably by decision. And that plus 105 is where you want to be for Chukagan. Though, again, I'm a little concerned about her durability against an aggressive Maya. I don't know what I'm thinking. Maybe I'm just way off on that. I'm just having some you know, weird scares here. But uh, I like you kicking them in the fight. Good luck with this one, guys. The main course for UFC Fight Night 201 is a featherweight bout at 145 pounds between Giga Chikaze from Georgia and Calvin Qatar, the American fighter. Qatar goes by the Boston finisher. He's 22-5 and five overall, 3-2 and two in his last five fights. He's from Methune, Massachusetts, 33 years old, 5'11 in height with a 72-inch reach. He trains out of 617 Fight Sports. As for Giga Chikaze, who goes by Ninja, he's 14-2 and two overall, 5-0 oh in his last five fights, out of Huntington Beach, California, where he trains out of Kings MMA. 6-foot height with 74-inch reach, so 1-inch height advantage there for Giga and a 2-inch reach advantage as well for Giga. According to Tapology, the public votes here are coming in on the side of Chikaze, with 82% of the votes coming in for Chikaze, only 18% of the votes coming in for Qatar. I also like Giga to win the fight. We'll break it down as simply as we can. I think he is just the, um, how do I say this, flavor of the month, flavor of the week. He's just a hot guy right now. I think Calvin Qatar is coming off of a, a beatdown uh, where he got himself served up by Max Holloway. We'll talk about that here. Anyway, some more numbers on the fighters. Calvin Qatar is landing 5.07 strikes per minute, absorbing 8.16. So not a great output versus uh, input. Um, and some of that may have been the Max Holloway fight. Um, as for Giga, he's landing 3.76 strikes, absorbing 2.69. So on the positive side there, 
In terms of uh, takedown offense, neither fighter is as much of a grappler or wrestler. Um, about a third of a takedown per 15 minutes for both fighters. Takedown defense, Qatar is a little bit better there. 89% takedown defense versus Giga is 68%. But again, neither fighter should be looking to take the fight to the ground. I imagine both fighters will be looking to strike, keep the fight in the feet. Now, looking here at some notes I have on both these fighters. For Giga Chikaze, he's from Georgia, started karate at a young age, like five years old. Actually went pro in kickboxing, has about 11 kickboxing bouts underneath his um, his uh, resume. If you look at him fight, it's obvious. Uh, he likes to use his legs, likes to strike, um, and he's effective with his striking. He's on a seven-fight winning streak right now. Um, I'm sorry, nine-fight winning streak, and he's 7-0 in the UFC. Um, three straight finishes. He hasn't lost a fight in over three years, so the guy is on a run. He did lose in his Dana White Contender Series debut in 2018 to Austin Spring. He lost via a rear naked choke in round three. Um, I'd like to say three years ago, he's chalked that up as a, as a learning experience. He's gotten better from that point. Because when you look at his topology, it's hard not to look at the fact that he does have a split decision win over Brandon Davis, followed by another split decision win over Jamal Emmers. And those two fighters are good fighters, but they're not quite at the hype level that we're giving Giga, you know, Giga Chikazi. And there were split decision wins. And some say he lost the fight against Jamal Emmers. I mean, you can look at that fight. The link's in the description. I think he possibly lost the fight, um, but somehow he got in the scorecards. Anyway, uh, more notes here on Giga. Um, he's been submitted once in his career and been KO'd once in his career. His biggest wins are against Edson Barbosa, round three TKO, and Cub Swanson, which was a nasty body kick, like a liver kick in round one. That moment for me was when I probably got more sold on Giga. Up until that point, it was like, well, he hasn't fought that many guys, or <clears throat> you know, maybe he got a few lucky breaks. Cub Swanson, uh, arguably, everyone would say is a tough SOB. He's a guy who's not an easy out, uh, a durable veteran, and he took a nasty kick to the midsection, and um, Cub Swanson was fine after a few minutes, but initially at the moment, he killed over and he was done. And, you know, for a guy like Cub Swanson to go down like that, um, I'm sure it hurt, but Cub Swanson's got like that extra level of just, you know, manhood, I guess, where, you know, it's going to take a lot for that guy to keel over from a body shot. And so that's when I was sold uh, on Giga in terms of his body, you know, his power to the body with his legs, power in general with his legs. Um, some of the positives here on Giga, his finishing power is equal in his hands and his legs. So if he kicks you, he can knock you out. He can knock you out with his hands. He's a quick striker and very athletic. So he's not a high volume guy. Um, and again, his numbers sort of show that under four strikes per minute. But when he strikes, he's quick, he's lethal, and he's powerful. He's an active fighter. He's fought six times in the last two years. Um, notably, he's been an underdog in four of his seven UFC fights. So consider this. So he's on a seven-fight UFC winning streak. But four of those seven fights, he was a dog. Plus 150 underdog against Edson Barbosa. Plus 185 dog against Omar Morales. Plus 150 underdog against Jamal Emmers. And a plus 135 underdog against Brandon Davis. And he won all those fights. So he has served up well for the people that bet on him when he's been an underdog. At the same time, you can always say, well, he's due, right? He's due for now a loss, right? We'll, we'll talk more about that. Some concerns I have on Giga, not many, because obviously there's a lot of positive in this guy. I think he has evolved in his last, you know, let's say five or six fights. He's evolved a lot. He's not the same guy who went to a split decision win against Brandon Davis or against Jamal Embers. He is a better fighter than he was at that point. And I would think a way better fighter than he was against Austin Spring when he got beat in his Dana White Contender Series debut. So um, the only concerns I have with him is he had split, two split decision wins against Jamal Emmers and Brandon Davis. I'm just being picky. And he hasn't really been chin-checked. So I, I want to see what happens here. Here's a guy, Calvin Qatar, five-round fight, who could take a punch. We'll talk more about him in a second, but he could take a punch and he could dish out some damage. So if it gets into a dogfight 
and Giga gets clipped, I want to see how he responds. That's one of the big questions I have on Giga Chikazik. What happens in round four or five if he gets cracked with a guy who's standing in front of him, who's taken his best, and has not gone away? And a guy like Calvin Qatar has shown that he's capable of doing that. So let's talk more about Calvin Qatar, a little about his background. Born and raised in Massachusetts, started wrestling in ninth grade, uh, went to state championship several times. His high, highest finish was a fifth place finish as a senior in high school, but still nonetheless, Massachusetts actually has some pretty good wrestling. He opted to, to, to actually forego college wrestling to pursue mixed martial arts as a, as a professional career coming out of high school. Made his pro debut in 2017 against Andre Feely. I'm sorry, excuse me. His UFC debut in 2017 against Andre Feely. He won that fight via decision. He's got a 6-3 UFC record, so pretty, you know, pretty good record in the UFC. Most notable opponent, Max Holloway. He lost to Max Holloway by decision early in 2021. We'll talk about that fight in a second. His biggest wins, Dan Ige via decision 2020. Jane Burgos, round three TKO 2018. So decent names, notable names. Some positives about Kevin Katara's uh, fighting style. Uh, he never lost back-to-back -back fights. You gotta like that. Here's a guy over the course of, what, 27 total fights. He's never lost back-to-back -back fights. And clearly he's coming off of a loss. So he's, you know, due to get a win here. He's got quality losses in his career. So Max Holloway... He went five rounds, decision, lost to him. Now, in that fight, let's talk about this fight here. If you're of the mindset that a fight can change the course of a fighter's career in terms of it was a terrible beatdown um, towards the end of the career, in the case of Calvin Qatar, he's 33 years old. It's not that he's like 53, but he's getting up there. He's got 27, you know, battles under his belt. This Max Holloway fight, the link's in the description. You can watch the fight yourself. I watched it, and I watched it like... At times, like, oh, shit. Like, are they going to stop this fight? Like, this dude's taking a pounding. So, mad respect to Calvin Guitar. Uh, this is not in any way, shape, or form disrespectful to him. Uh, his chin was unbelievable. Uh, looked a lot like um, like with, with Ortega versus Volkanovski. That kind of a beating. It was rough, man. And Calvin Guitar stood in there and went the full distance. It's an amazing feat. But, like, some of his soul looked like it left his body. And my concern here is here you're going against a guy like Iga Chikaze, who is a finisher, three straight, three straight wins by finish, nasty leg kicks, nasty body kicks, you know, violent puncher. Calvin Guitar seems to be slowing down to me. It reminds me a lot of Donald Cerrone right now, where it's a guy who still has some of the tools, but he's a little late to the party. Um, he, he's not responding as quickly as the guy in front of him. You know, if he's shadow boxing, the shadow's beating him. You know, basically, he's just not quick enough. And so what's happening here? You got a guy like Giga Chikaze who's the same age, 33. They're the same age, but it's like a younger 33, right? It's a little less fights and definitely not the, the the war he was in against, you know, Max Holloway. I want to make sure I emphasize this. Because he was in the war with Max Holloway and survived five rounds and went to decision, it also suggests to me that Giga may not be able to finish him. So I want to make sure I put that out there. Calvin Qatar may not get finished in this fight. So the people were like, oh, Giga Chikaze, the Giga kick and whatever the... Listen, Calvin Qatar is a tough out. He's a tough dude. He's taking the appropriate time off. That should be noted. Some guys jump back in there too early after taking an ass whooping like that. Qatar, his camp, did the right thing. Got himself fully recovered here. Coming in almost a full year now later to take this fight with Giga. Um, that's all positive. Um, some other things about Qatar. Uh, he, he's um, He's got nice combinations when he boxes. So let me, let me break this down for you. Some guys will be one-punch fighters. Some guys will be one-two fighters. Uh, some guys will just, you know, big upper hooks or big overhand rights. This guy throws body shots and headshot in combination. So you're talking about three or four punch combinations. They're nice. They're uh, they're combined well. Um, he throws them at different points in the fight. So it's not just first round when he's, you know, when he's fresh. He can throw those same combinations in round three, four, five. 
That's another question here. How does Giga Chikaze fare against a guy who's not an easy out, goes to deeper waters, gets a few combinations, you know, gets his body, gets a guy like Calvin Qatar who's going to – listen, you have to hit Qatar in the head with a pipe. Max Holloway could not finish him, okay? If you want to see what I'm talking about, watch that fight, please. He could not finish him. So my my concern for the Giga people, and I'm on Giga's side to win the fight because I think that he's going to have the higher output – Land the higher, you know, higher like um, highlight strikes, the ones that look flashier. He does that kind of weird shit. Like he'll do some kind of weird stuff, spinning stuff. It's off balance. Usually he falls down and gets back up quickly. But I think he lands the, you know, the more highlight level strikes. I think he lands more strikes. I think he wins three of the five rounds. I think he's the guy that UFC wants to see continue to go up. I think it's a good matchup for him. But he may not finish Qatar uh, because again, the guy is a is is a real tough dude. Now. Some concerns I have on Calvin Guitar. His finish rate is slowing down a lot now. So he's been a decision in three of his last four fights. His prior four fights before that, he had finishes in three of those four fights. So like, if you look at his last four fights, three of those four fights go to the decision. The four fights before all that, three of those four fights were finishes by him. So right now, you're seeing a, a, a sharp decline in his finish rate. He's not very active the past you know, few years. So for example, he fought once in 2021. That was Holloway. And he fought twice in 2020. Okay, here he comes now, 2022. He's going to take his first fight coming up, obviously, early in the year in January. So slowing down, getting older, less fights, um, becoming a little inconsistent. Okay, so consider this. The guy's record overall is amazing, 22-5 and five overall. That's a, that, Anybody would take that record. Well, I shouldn't say anybody. Not not Nurmagomedov, right? He was perfect record. But most guys would take that kind of a record, um, and also with a lot of UFC, UFC experience. But in his last seven fights, he's 4-3. and three. This, again, lends to the philosophy that he's slowing down. Everything is starting to slow down. His finish rate's slowing down. His winning percentage is slowing down. He just got rocked in this Holloway fight. I think all the warning signs are there that he's being served up here to a up-and-coming prospect. Same age, yes, it's important to note that, but just different mileage. These two cars have been driven differently. And right now, Giga's car has been a little pampered, um, got the benefit of some fights, hasn't really taken a beating. Yes, got knocked out once. Yes, got submitted once. But they were years ago. He's on a hell of a winning streak. I think, look, I think the judges come in here. Yes, they're supposed to be neutral, right? But Geek is the flashy guy. You know, he's the guy who's going to be getting the oohs and the ahs from whatever little fans that are there. It's in the apex. It's in Las Vegas. It's not going to be a full house. Um, and it brings me to another subject matter. There's going to be a significant speed disadvantage for Calvin Qatar. He's not going to be able to keep up with the striking speed of Giga. And when he goes to counter, it's going to be so slow. Giga's... Um, karate background, very good at his feet, former kickboxer, you know, knows how to move his feet, tends to have good cardio. I've heard people say Giga's cardio may be a question. I do agree. For round four, round five, we just don't know what he's going to look like in those rounds. So we should see, we should look at those rounds very carefully. If it gets to that point, it may get a distinction at that point. I'm not sure. It seems as if the way he's fought in the past, Giga that is, that his cardio is okay. But for round five, championship rounds, things do, you know, things are different. Things change. It could be tougher for him. Um, both fighters avoid grappling, so I want to make sure I, I remind everyone it should not be on the ground at all. If it gets on the ground, it's going to be more because of Giga maybe falling or slipping because of some weird spinning heel kick or elbow or something he does. He ends up on the floor. Calvin Guitar mounts him for a second. They both get back to the feet. Now, the fights we looked at to break down this this uh, this film here was Chikaze versus Barboza, Chikaze versus Swanson, Chikaze versus Emmers, Qatar versus Holloway, Qatar versus Ige, and, and uh, Qatar versus Stevens. Those six fights and those six links are all in the description if you want to watch those fights yourself. Just some more notes here on the fighters side by side. In terms of fighter IQ, 
I give these guys both about the same. Um, I mean, I'm, I want to give Giga a little bit, a little bit of bump up over um, Qatar, but I can't. Qatar's a warrior, twenty-two and five record. He showed a lot of fucking, uh, just excuse my French, just a whole lot of, uh, of machismo in that fight against Holloway to stand in there and take that for five rounds and survive. So I can't give a guy like that a low IQ rating. The, the guy's just a damn warrior. For Giga Chikaze, he could be a future champion. So IQ wise, these guys have seemed very similar. Experience wise. I give a slight edge to Qatar. He's fought slightly better competition, but Giga has fought some decent guys as well. But experience-wise, definitely go the edge goes to Qatar. He's been five rounds. He's been in there with a championship-level guy. Cardio-wise, again, I give a small, small edge to Calvin Qatar. He's been five rounds. I've seen what he looks like in five rounds. He won the fifth round against you know Max Holloway in that fight after all that you know damage he took in round one through four. So bottom line is I think he's got an advantage in the cardio department as well. Finishing department, Giga has a clear advantage. I've, I've already talked about how Calvin Qatar's finishing rate has gone down. He's getting older. He's slowing down, whereas Giga Chikaze has finished three straight fights in a row. Boxing technique, the boxing ability, the ability to hurt somebody, um, I think Giga has a slight advantage there. He's going to be a little bit faster. He's going to land a little bit more uh, volume. He's going to be able to hit with the feet and the hands, something that Qatar can't do as much with the legs. Qatar does do some lower leg kicks, but not as much of a kicker or as violent of a kicker as Giga Chikaze. In terms of the grappling, it's even. Both guys are not really grapplers. They're not going to look to grapple. They both look to strike. So prop bets to consider for this fight. I think TKO for Giga, Giga Chikaze. At some point, maybe he lands a nasty set of kicks in combination with some hands, puts Calvin Qatar on the ropes, not the ropes, on the edge of the cage or on the mat, pounding him out, TKO victory of some kind. I can see that happening. The only other prop bet I would have mentioned would be Giga Chikaze by a decision. Um, I'm not sure this fight doesn't go to decision. So the over-under of the fight, like over-under, two and a half, three rounds, whatever, I think it definitely gets to round three, I think. But I don't have a great read on it because it's like what, what Calvin Guitar has shown in the past is that he could take a lot of damage. So he should be able to go to round five and get through the first, you know, four or five rounds. But Giga Chikaze kicked the hell out of Swanson and dropped him so fast in that fight. It just makes me wonder how legit is Giga? Like... Is this dude, like, for real? Like, I'm still asking myself. Like, when I say for real, like, he's a legit prospect. But, like, is this guy as lethal as it seems? We'll see what happens here. I like you get Chikaze to win the fight. Money line. Let's talk about it because we don't have the money line yet. That kind of worries me, too. I wonder if something's going on with this fight where maybe it's in jeopardy. But the rest of the fights in this card, the money line's been available now for... Excuse me, I'm a little stuffed up. At least for a, almost a week now. So here we are about two weeks out from the fight as, at the time of this recording. The numbers are still not available. I'm going to guesstimate when the numbers come out, Chikaze will be a minus 250 to minus 275 favorite in that range. If it's like minus 200, there's a lot of value there. Minus 150, minus 175, a lot of value. I think once you get that minus 300 range, we got to start talking some parlay pieces. We got to start talking some business. You're not going to put $300 up to win 100 bucks. This is an MMA fight. MMA fight. I, I think Calvin Qatar deserves a legit shot here to land something, um, maybe just to take the fight in round four or five and gets closer to scorecards. Giga Chikaze has won split decisions in the past. Could it be his time to lose one of those decisions? Um, I think he's the guy who's going to get the rub. I think he's the guy they want to see win. I think it's a good matchup for him. I think Calvin Katar is not going to be able to keep up with this guy. The questions will become at that point, how much can Katar, Katar take? And does Giga have a good enough gas tank to keep up with the volume and the striking for you know rounds four and five? So that's a breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. All right, just a quick summary here of our picks to win. We like Giga Chikaze, Chukagan, Ahasan, Pereira, Rodriguez, Brito, Bontarin, Kakramanov, Brahamaj, Sherman, Borshev, Demopoulos, Brown, Barcelos, and Holmes. The spots we like the most, that we have the most confidence in, 
Joseph Holmes, Ramiz Brahamaj, Said Yakub Kakramanov, Clayton Rodriguez, and I think I'm going to throw Giga in there. I like Giga in the main event. The spots that we had the least confidence in, Kaitlyn Chukagan over Maya, uh, Bontarino over Roy Val, and Borshev over Bush. Now, some dogs that we did talk about here. We took Abdul Razak Hassan at plus 125 in the main, main, main card. I do like him there. I have a lot of confidence in him. Bontarine, not as much confidence over Roy Val, but I do have him as a dog winning at plus 140. They weigh down the prelim card. Chase Sherman at plus 105. That's more or less a pick him. I like him as a dogger pass. And TJ Brown, same thing over Benitez. I like him as a dogger pass at plus 160. So there's your breakdown. Don't forget, hit the comment section. Give us a vow for something kind you're going to do for the holidays. Win your $25 Amazon gift card. And if worse comes to worse and you don't get the prize, you kind of do get the prize, right? The prize of being good in life, right? Good karma, good energy. So thanks for joining us, guys. Please tune in for our prop show, which will be coming out soon. It's called Pick Your Poison. We're going over this entire card, talking about our, our favorite spots, some over-unders, some violent spots, some uh, spots you want to stay away from, um, and we'll always, of course, talk about the parlay pieces. So thanks for joining us, guys. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. We'll see you soon.